0: Crime Scenes and Cupcakes is a true crime investigative podcast. We discuss cases regarding the assault, murder, sexual assault, or cases involving the abuse or abduction of adults or children. These topics can be very disturbing and a trigger to many individuals. So please listen accordingly. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, Help is available. You can text, call, or chat 988. This is available 24-7. It is also available in multiple languages for anyone who needs mental health-related or suicide crisis support. It can connect you with trained crisis counselors. Also, if you are in Wichita, There is a local crisis center. Call 316-660-7500. Hey guys, it's Mary Ann, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker, and I want to thank you for joining us on our summer series of child on child crimes. Our first episode is going to discuss psychopathy in children and how the refusal of mental health systems to diagnose this in younger persons can leave siblings, neighbors, classmates, as well as pets open to fall victims to these remorseless juveniles. Now, I want to start this off by stating that this podcast is going to be longer than most of my podcasts. One because it's a field I feel very strongly about and I've done a lot of research in. And two, it's not a subject matter that you can boil down to an elevator pitch. It's something that you really have to delve into. And I wanna add a three. I didn't put it in my notes, but I wanna make sure I have it here. Three is, this is for educational purposes, only. This isn't something that people should just take off to and start stating all of this as fact. These are for educational purposes only. Now, I'm sorry for all of you listeners who this type of thing isn't really your cup of tea. We will be having more unsolved cases that'll be coming out here in a few days. In fact, we're going to have the case of Armani Morgan from Dallas, Texas. And some amazing updates on the Gail Sorensen and Mary Krepper's case that's going to have a special guest that's going to be joining me, as well as Fasika Tadell's case, and Fasica Tadell's father is going to be joining me with that case. We're also going to be having so many, unfortunately, so many other cold cases that we're going to be talking about that we're hoping to get coverage on, and maybe we can get some of these cases solved. I have a lot of people asking me about updates in Krista Martin's case. Again, we keep trying to get information and we are hoping to get updates in that case. But here's a piece of good news. I have, because of your support of all of you amazing listeners, I've had amazing different other organizations reaching out to me wanting to do their own podcast and wanting to do their own coverage of Krista's case. By the fact that others are wanting to cover her case, that gives her case even more promotion and more awareness and gives it a higher chance of being solved. So I want to say thank you to all of you. Now, as I had said, this podcast is focusing on child on child crimes. And this is actually a large issue that is occurring across the United States, but it gets little to no attention. Instead, people label it as just children playing or boys will be boys. And one of the cases that really does a great job of illustrating both. Child psychopathy and child-on-child child crimes is the case of Alyssa Bustamante. Child-on-child crimes it can take many forms. It can happen both inside and outside of schools and colleges, and it's most likely. But it's not limited to bullying, which is you know cyberbullying, but also verbal bullying. It can be prejudice-based, it can be discriminatory, but that's not the only way. But that seems to be the only way people truly fixate on. The abuse can be intimate, it can be in intimate relationships, and we, are, again, are talking about children and young people. It can be physical abuse, sexual violence, such as rape, assault by penetration, sexual assault, sexual harassment, non-consensual sharing of nude and semi-nude images and or videos and causing someone to engage in sexual activity without consent. So when you talk about child on child violence, those are the types of things you think about, but you don't think about children actively fighting and hurting another child. Again, you just think of that as play, but you don't think about a child actively in a moment of aggression, wanting to inflict violence on another child but it really does happen. And what amazes me is neighbors are more apt to reach out to each other over the loss of a piece of property than they are over the loss of one of their own children i mean hell you can drive through neighborhoods and find missing posters for dogs cats and if you look on Mookie G one of my favorite comedians if you go on his instagram page you'll even find one for a missing peacock and it begs the question why are people so quick to safeguard their property over their own children or even when you think of it their neighbors children Surprisingly, they are reticent to speak up when they outwardly see abusive behaviors or even really abnormal behaviors of children in their own backyards. However, if you go online, the protection of children appears to be the one thing everyone seems to agree on. You see people shouting from behind their keyboards, we must protect the children. And they're saying all of this while they're mounting cameras all around their property, and they're saying they're doing this to check out unscrupulous strangers. But honestly, I think they're more looking for a viral TikTok moment than they are to look for the boogeyman. Or maybe they're just trying to protect the 1992 coachman that's parked in their driveway. But I've noticed that more people just turn a blind eye to the nine-year-old that's pummeling the smaller child out there on the sidewalk right in front of their house. Neighbors ignore it when this same kid who's armed with sticks, BB guns, and other devices begin to torture the neighborhood pets... And the little feral stray cats that are roaming the blocks just looking for shelter or food. Now, I have actively seen a child running home and crying to his mother because this same kid is yelling the most hateful and vile things. The same things that if an adult were to have said, that adult would be in jail. or at minimum, the police were to be called. Now, you might ask, well, has anybody talked to this child's parents? Or has anyone called the authorities on this child? And the answer to both of those questions are an absolute yes. The parents are even usually outside when most of these things happen. And If one of the other parents walks the few houses down to confront that parent, they're usually met with a drunken tirade of defenses. Then the parent, just fed up, decides to walk the few houses down back to their house. But the parent of the nine-year-old will get in a car and drive those two or three houses back to the other parent's house and evoke just so many more excuses. Why is everyone picking on my child while yelling scripture? While the instigator of this whole issue sits at home, probably eating a Pop-Tart and planning his next assault to the neighborhood. So, yeah, people talk to the parents. With such behaviors, I have noticed that most of the neighbors have just decided it's safer to just avoid that entire end of the neighborhood. So if you drive through this neighborhood, you will literally see a dividing line, a invisible dividing line, where children will play all at one end of a neighborhood, while everybody avoids the other. Now, this child though, nothing stops him. He will continue to ride throughout the block yelling up into the air the most vile curse words at the top of his voice. And trust me, I haven't heard such vile things, even when I'm watching my favorite show, The Boys, on Amazon Prime. It's literally disgusting. And the thing that stands out to me the most is the fact that the neighborhood used to be a place of tons of children out playing and camaraderie, But you don't see that anymore. It's almost a dead quiet place. And the children only come outside in short bursts. And you will even see pets creating a wide swath from the area. Now, I'm not trying to throw hate or create animosity or gossip. What I'm reflecting on is I grew up in an environment much like this, but it was different in the fact that that kind of behavior wasn't even looked at as odd. I grew up with someone who regularly treated frogs to baseball practice and they would take cats and swing them by them to their tails and throw them as hard as they could over the fences. Then this person went on to commit the most Heinous crimes still against children as they became an adult. So my fears are not only for the creatures that live in that neighborhood, but also for the children living in that neighborhood. Because child-on-child crimes they continue to rise. But the numbers are difficult to calculate because abusers and their victims rarely report it due to stigmatization. Let's talk about what can happen if mental health issues or a behavior of a possible psychopathic child isn't taken seriously at a young age and what can happen in development. Can this be life-threatening to others? Let's take the case of 15-year-old Alyssa Bustamante from St. Martins, Missouri. Now, she had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder after she had a troubled childhood. She had severe mistreatment with her parents, and she had even confided in one mental health professional that she had had an abhorrence for violence. I mean, she was saying, oh, I just... I don't like violence. I don't want anything to do with violence. Now, Alyssa herself, she was the result of a teenage pregnancy. Her mother, Michelle, she was only 15 years old when Alyssa was born. But Alyssa was soon joined by three younger siblings. She had twin brothers and a little sister named Emma. Now, Emma is going to be an important player with tragic events that happen later. Now, Michelle, though, had a very supportive mother named Karen and Karen was doing what she could because Karen was really excited to have grandchildren. So she tried to help out where she could, but all the help that she gave could not help with all of the violence that was going to end up coming to this family. Now, their father, Alyssa's father, Caesar Bustamante, he was eventually charged with multiple counts of assault, and he was sentenced to concurrent prison terms. And then the life became even more turbulent for the children because, you know, with their mom, she ended up going in and out of jail, and she had problems as well. So the grandparents, Karen and Gary Brooke, they decided the best thing for the children was to provide them a stable home. So, they got full custody and they wanted to move the kids to someplace stable and provide them some stability. So, at eight years old, Alyssa and her siblings, they are living with full custody with the grandparents and the grandparents are trying to repair all the damage that the parents previously had done and they move to St. Martin's, Missouri. Now it's at this point that controversy begins. So let's say the damage to Alyssa had already taken hold and the damage was irreparable. Now we have the discussion of nature versus nurture, psychopath versus sociopath. Cliff Notes version essentially is, is that psychopaths result more from genetics or congenital injury, such as a head injury at birth, then from environmental factors. And sociopathy is set in motion by specific environmental factors, such as a troubled childhood, traumatic interpersonal relationships, or a history of abuse. Now, warning signs for developing sociopaths or psychopath characteristics by children and teenagers um, can kind of be the same thing in ways. And it's aggression towards people or animals, violent outbursts, social isolation, lack of empathy, destruction of property, lying, theft, serious violation of rules or laws, bedwetting, and fire setting, now the bedwetting and fire setting, those are found more in psychopathy. Now Alyssa's grandparents, as I said, they wanted to give the kids a new start, a chance to reset in a new environment in St. Martin's, Missouri. And when you look at St. Martin's, Missouri, it is a great place to raise a family. It's quiet. It's rural. The locals are warm and friendly, and there's lots of things to do outside. It has hiking trails, fishing spots, wildlife preserves. The schools are cited to be excellent, and it provides excellent educational opportunities for children of all ages. Google images show lush forests, waterways, churches, and all the pictures show lots of children playing. I mean, what could go wrong? Well, for anyone who encounters Alyssa Bustamante, a lot, a lot could end up going wrong. And it did. Now the grandparents had bought a nice home on a large piece of land and Alyssa's twin brothers and her sister, they really seemed to flourish. So you have that, they had the same childhood, they went through the same life, and they seem to be doing well by outwardly appearances. Now, unless you looked up Alyssa on social media, Alyssa seemed to have issues adjusting. Now, on Wednesday, October 21st of 2009, Alyssa's younger sister, Emma, who is six years old, she knocks on the door of a nearby neighbor, nine-year-old Elizabeth Olton, and she asked if Elizabeth could come out and play. Now, Elizabeth and Emma would often be seen playing in the neighborhood together, so this is an odd. However, on this particular day, Elizabeth would never be seen again after playing with Emma. Now, there's nothing overly remarkable about Elizabeth Olton. She's a sweet, beautiful little girly girl. And she was actually rehearsing for an upcoming musical at school. And her mom really didn't want to let her go out to play. It was getting close to, going, to getting dark outside. She had to rehearse for her musical. So her mom was like, you know, I just, I really don't think it's a good idea. And her mom should have listened to her inner voice and said no, but instead you you want to give in to your kids. So she's told her okay, and she knew Elizabeth was afraid of the dark, so she knew Elizabeth would come back, and so she says okay, go ahead and play, but you have to be home by six p.m. for supper, and. So Elizabeth's mom thought, okay, this is going to be simple because, again, her daughter is scared of the dark, so there's no way she's going to defy her. The girls run over to Emma's house to play games, as young girls do, until it was time for Elizabeth to return home. Now, again, Elizabeth was quick to do as she was told. Emma tells Elizabeth goodbye, and Elizabeth makes the short walk home. And that was the last Elizabeth was seen. It was about 615 when she was last seen heading home. Again, her house is only a few doors down, but Elizabeth is never seen alive again. Now, when she doesn't return home, her family starts frantically looking for it. And they know to call the police quickly because. There is no way she's going to have gone, A, she won't have gone to the woods, and B, she's not going to just take off. This is a little nine-year-old girl. And this is a little nine-year-old girl who is afraid of the dark. Now, when investigators asked Emma about what had happened after she and Elizabeth had finished playing, She stated, well, after we got done playing, I stood on this big rock that's near the end of our driveway, and I watched her for a little while, but, you know, I'm a kid. I got kind of tired of watching her, so then I went on and started playing around a little bit, and as I was playing, one of my hair ties, one of her hair ties had gotten stuck in some thorn bushes, and as she was trying to get it out, her hands got all scratched up hair ties are important. We all know as women or even young girls we don't like losing those and no matter how many we have we always have her favorite and we want to get it back and not only had she got her hair tie stuck she ended up getting her foot stuck so she screamed for her sister Alyssa for help Now, Alyssa claims she had been in the house, and her window had been open, and she heard Emma screaming for help, and so she comes to help her. And when she comes to help her, Emma notices that there's blood on Alyssa's pants, and she asked Alyssa about it because it was odd. And Alyssa said she had started her period and not to tell anybody. Periods still carry a stigma. So it's not odd that people are like, oh, I got, I've kind of bled through, or I, I didn't realize I was on my period and I don't want anybody to know. So don't tell anyone. So that's not uncommon. Everybody is still looking for Elizabeth. And while they're out looking for Elizabeth, they also end up finding holes, holes out in the woods. And investigators find out that there is somebody who likes to dig holes, just randomly enjoys digging holes. Now listeners might wonder why I have such a fascination with the fact that Alyssa Bustamante was out digging holes and that she liked to dig holes so much And I talk about the fact that she is digging holes a lot in this podcast. And there's a reason for that. When I was in college, one of the serial killers, and I don't have a fixation on serial killers per se, but I am fascinated with the serial killer, Ted Bundy. And Ted Bundy, as many of you are aware, the infamous psychopathic serial killer who confessed to 30 murders. A lot of people know a lot about him, but I've noticed not a lot of people are aware that the young Ted Bundy liked to dig holes. He would dig a lot of holes as a child, and he enjoyed doing it because he wanted passerbys to fall into the holes, and he wanted to watch them get hurt. He was fascinated to see the hows and whys of them getting hurt in holes. And that was one of the things Ted Bundy enjoyed doing, or young Theodore Bundy enjoyed doing as a child. And To me, that action, it's now widely regarded as a sign of his young mental health issues. And it it just really got me that so many people didn't catch on to the fact with Alyssa Bustamante because that was a big thing she was doing as a young child and as she grew up around her house. In fact, her grandmother complained about it a lot. Now, Ted Bundy, as we know, he caused so much misery, not just for the people he killed, but the people who surrounded him and the countless others he lied to, manipulated, and just out and out confused until the moment he was executed by electric chair. But what if there had been a way to stop future Ted Bundy's from embarking upon a lifetime of harm and crime? What if after it became clear that he liked to torture innocent people, but he wasn't a murderer yet, he had received targeted treatment that would have gotten to the root of his misbehavior and to compel him to live a life that caused no more pain than the average human already does to everyone else. Psychologists recognize psychopathy only as an adult disorder, as a general rule. They don't diagnose young children. Fear, stigma, and misunderstanding around that label means psychologists instead diagnose and treat kids for irrelevant issues like anxiety or ADHD, which can actually make things worse. For years, the medical community assumed that people with psychopathic traits or referred to as psychopaths are untreatable. The only thing that they ever did with them was lock them up for their crimes and then just hope you never come across one. But the tide against treatment for psychopathy is beginning to turn, for kids in particular. The latest theory of some experts is that the best way to treat psychopathy is to identify the characteristic traits in children and adolescents before it becomes a full-blown problem. Now, this means prescribing children and their parents. This is really important. Don't forget the parents. And this means prescribing them with a taxing combination of therapies, and you also have to confront the difficult possibility that this child is going to grow up into a psychopath. But the trade-off is that if you catch the issue early, you could save countless lives and billions of dollars in incarceration costs. Now, the word here is emerging psychopaths. The treatments are available in their infancy. And this is from the Yale's published paper on psychopathy in children. And randomized trials are difficult to conduct in prison settings. I mean, come on, that's a controlled setting. But that research is promising and it does show that with some foresight, care and considerable patience, a peaceful life is possible not only for the psychopath, their families, and holy cow, the community, that would be incredible. Now, contrary to popular belief, psychopathy is not the same thing as antisocial personality disorder or sociopathy. I see this used interchangeably so much and I find it so frustrating. Also, Antisocial Personality Disorder, or ASPD, that represents a lifelong tendency to just disregard and violate the rights of others, as well as traits like impulsivity, irritability, deceitfulness, and a lack of remorse. People with psychopathy have many of these traits, but they're also very charming, manipulative, and when we say unemotional, they have emotion for themselves. They understand emotion. They just don't care about yours. Now, sociopathy. Sociopathy is more of a blunt emotional affect. They have charm and callousness, but they appear to have a really strong environmental component such as they've had abuse at a really early age. Charles Manson is one that's really hard to determine if he would have been that way regardless because he had so much abuse heaped upon him at such an early age that when people use the word psychopath with him, I oftentimes wonder about that one because Charles Manson was abused at such a young age that yes, he has this charm and he has this charisma, but he was so emotionally abused. I'm often waffling on the fence. And again, this is just my own personal views on this. Now, today's clinicians They diagnose psychopathy in adults by reviewing files and conducting interviews. And again, I will bring up Dr. Robert Hare. Dr. Robert Hare developed the psychopathy checklist, and we will have that on our social media. And then the book I was referring to, Without Conscience by Dr. Robert Hare, it's available on Audible. If you have um, an Audible account, You can just go ahead and listen to it without having to utilize one of your credits, or you can listen to it, or you can go ahead and get it through Amazon. I highly recommend it if you are interested in psychopathy. Treating children as they begin to display psychopathic traits, that could be the key to successfulness in treatment. I mean, think about this. If in Ted Bundy's case, when he was placing knives around his sleeping family member, If they would have got intense treatment for Ted Bundy at that moment, how many lives could have been saved at that moment? If you just think about that. I mean, it has to be caught early in childhood or at least by adolescence. It has to be caught before the full manifestation of adulthood, but the family usually should always be involved. However, if the family is so toxic, It might be better to just remove the individual from the family in those type of contexts. Now, the ability to treat people with psychopathic traits, it does get harder as the patient gets older. Where you could treat a 16-year-old with maybe six months of treatment, a 22-year-old might need two years of treatment, but it's not impossible it may just take longer. But one thing I have noticed in today's society is whether it's having a cold or having cancer or mental health, we are a very reactive society. We would rather watch and wait and just see what happens type of technique rather than being proactive and try to intervene before the worst case scenario occurs and in this case it could be the taking of a life either their own or another innocent victim and this is the case that happened with Aly- Alyssa Bustamante. she's out there she's digging holes she's making threats and now she's lured a nine-year-old neighbor elizabeth olton into the woods near her home she strangles and stabs her to death. Now, there were signs that Alyssa Bustamante wasn't the normal teen next door. In fact, when the nine-year-old neighbor had gone missing, several of Alyssa's friends were worried Alyssa might have been involved. Her best friend claimed Alyssa had once told her she wondered what it might be like to kill someone. But if you dig even further into her digital footprint, Investigators found that Alyssa had many online accounts. On her YouTube account, she listed killing people and cutting as some of her hobbies. But there's even more. Perhaps the most disturbing clue investigators found was in Alyssa's YouTube account, where what police described as disturbing home movies including one in which she touched an electrified cattle fence and then urged her little brothers to do the same. Now, before the clip involving her brothers, Alyssa wrote on it, this is where it gets good. This is where my brothers get hurt. Now, as I had said earlier, neither of Alyssa's parents were around. Alyssa was in the care of her grandparents, and she was born to a teenage mother with a criminal record for petty crimes, drug possession, and a DUI. Her father is serving a 10-year prison sentence for assault, and her bedroom was littered with these bizarre letters to and from her father, Caesar Bustamante. And Alyssa herself was described as violent, depressed, and angry. Even though she had told a mental health worker that she abhorred violence, her room was an altar to violence. And yes, her own grandmother had seen her room on numerous occasions. Had she experienced the correct type of mental health or psychiatric treatment, could this tragedy have been avoided? Because remember, she was being treated for post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. That's what Alyssa Bustamante was being treated for. Now, it's also been speculated that the reason Alyssa dug one hole, and when we th- we're going to get into the hole later, but she dug, out of her normal little holes she dug, she had dug a large hole. And she had dug not only one large hole, she had dug two a few days earlier. And it's speculated, again, this is just the speculation. There is no proof of this. But it was speculated that she had originally planned to murder her two younger brothers previously. But then victim of opportunity was Elizabeth Olton. Investigators feel as if the YouTube video had backed up that theory as she clearly took delight in inflicting pain upon her little brothers. Now, Alyssa herself has never corroborated this allegation. And even though we think we might know the answer, we just never do. But yet I'm often reminded of Ted Bundy digging holes around his home, watching and waiting for any opportunities. Who would be his first victim? Did Alyssa have different targets in mind for her crimes? Would she have killed again if she had not been caught? When we discuss child-on-child crimes, I just want to help define just a little bit. For those of you who might be confused, those are crimes committed on children, by children under the age 17 and younger. You know, we have been talking about the definitions of psychopathy, sociopathy, and we've also been talking about the Alyssa Bustamante case. We're going to be getting a little bit more into the Alyssa Bustamante case on the next part of the podcast. We're also going to be getting into her interrogation and signs and clues that happened on that case And we're also going to be discussing a YouTube site that I strongly encourage you guys go and watch. And we're going to have um, a link of it on our social media. And it also just does an amazing job when you're talking about body language and also police interrogation techniques. One unexpected but positive lead was that nine-year-old Elizabeth had a cell phone. Normally, I don't advocate for children to have cell phones, but in this situation, I am so flippin' glad she did. Law enforcement decided to ping the cell phone, hoping it could turn up a possible location. Now, this location... Um has led back to almost 60 acres of woods behind the house between the Bustamante's and the old neighborhood. It has also led investigators to another disturbing discovery. They find a hole. Now, like we said, Bustamante likes to dig holes, but this hole is in the shape of a grave. Now, forensics is called in to process it for any useful evidence and, you know, hopefully finding something, but in the meantime, the FBI has decided to also try to see if they can find any additional clues, and that takes them to take a closer look at Alyssa Bustamante. Now, to try to establish a body cube baseline, agents bring her to the hole, and they begin asking her questions about it. Alyssa admits that she's the one that dug the hole, And when questioned further as to the reason, Alyssa just states, I just like digging holes. Yep. No alarm bells going off here at all. She just states she likes to dig holes. And for some reason she adds, oh, I also like to bury dead animals because I find it respectful. Totally normal conversation. Now the hole was empty. But agents knew they, they're not dealing with a normal teenage girl. So they decide to go back to her room and take a look at any other uncovered pieces of evidence that could lead them to what happened to Elizabeth Olton. Now, before we go any further, I want to strongly suggest to listeners to go and explore and to go to a YouTube channel titled Explore With Us. It's a YouTube channel that utilizes a licensed attorney, psychological analysis by a clinical psychological candidate. And they do a great job in breaking down body language and police interrogation techniques. Normally I don't watch a lot of those, but I thought they did a fantastic job with this case. And I would really encourage you to go and take a look at that, especially if you're interested in this case. Uh, The footage is a little grainy with Alyssa, but there are some moments in this case that you might hear me talk about that you might want to go and see for yourself. Now, if you listen to our recent podcast about Jennifer Wilson, we have discussed about how investigators will already have some type of baseline to a person before they bring them into a room to interrogate. Which means before they brought Alyssa Bustamante into that room, they've already spoken to friends. They've spoken to family. They've kept an eye on her out in the wild, as we might say. You have to remember, this is several days that they have been looking for Elizabeth. And if you think they haven't been watching Alyssa you would be wrong. Also, investigators don't bring into an interrogation just to cast a wide net. Some people think, oh, they bring everybody in. That isn't true either. They're not going to waste their time bringing an entire town in. They bring people in when they know they may have some good reason to do so. Now, as I'd said earlier, since Alyssa was a juvenile, however, her grandmother, Karen was present and also a juvenile advocate. The juvenile advocate is the reason I really want to harp on this. The juvenile advocate in these cases can make or break a case. Sorry, I didn't mean to start pounding on this, but in this case, I become so frustrated with this juvenile advocate. I just, I have my own personal reasons, but yeah, we'll get into it. Now, her grandmother fully expected Alyssa that this was just a case. They're trying to gather information and they're trying to find Elizabeth and she's just thinking, okay, I'm just going to sit here. We're going to get this over with and it's all going to be good to go. She had no idea how to prepare herself for what was going to happen. Now it was, um, officer David Rice. He initiates the interview with Alyssa and Alyssa, is just acting detached and calm as any other 15 year old girl whose nine year old neighbor has gone missing, right? She's acting as calm and cool as just anything I've ever seen. Um. And, and that always blew my mind with Alyssa. You know, she's a 15 year old girl in a room with two investigators. Her neighbor has gone missing and she is acting like she's just sitting at Starbucks, having a coffee. I mean, you see no irritation. You find no stress level. You don't hear stress in her voice. She is just disengaged from the situation and even at one point when they're asking her about Elizabeth Olton again, this is a little girl missing. She even calls her annoying. That again is something you don't see a typical person do when it's a missing child. That's, but again, you know, she's 15. So now in Alyssa's interview, um, The majority of her interview, the beginning of it, really concentrates on these holes she digs. I mean, if you can get through that part of it, a lot of it talks about the holes, the holes. One thing just really got to me was when her grandmother even spoke up about how, yeah, she digs holes all the times. And when we had horses, it used to bother me because it's almost like she wanted the horse to fall in and break its leg and I'm like, Um, hello, did you guys, any of you research Ted Bundy? Yes, this is what she wants. Now, the reason Sergeant Rice focuses on this hole so much is the fact that it was dug around the time Elizabeth went missing, not the same day, but around that time, and this hole was the perfect size and shape to resemble a grave for a small child. It was about three by five foot deep, and it was fairly shallow. So, of course, investigators are going to find it interesting. And also that there was not one, but two. Now, Alyssa's response is, well, yeah, I guess the timing of digging the hole wasn't great. And, you know, again, her grandma interjects, well, she digs holes all the time. You know, it it just, it kind of goes back and forth to this hole. But then they start talking about Alyssa's bedroom. This is when you start to see her emotional resolve change and you don't see it become a very sad emotion. you start to see her anger come through. And then police had found out that, Hey, Alyssa had blood on her pants. The day Elizabeth had died and police had found some disturbing things. Then police went into Elizabeth, Alyssa's room. Going into Alyssa's room was a surreal moment. In Alyssa's room, she had very dark things. And when I say dark things, it isn't same some dark words from a band. She doesn't have, you know, Marilyn Manson words up on the wall. Alyssa is making outward discussions of killing her sister, Emma. Alyssa is talking about blood, but on another part, she says, I love you, but that looked like it was written in blood below her window. So I do have pictures that I will be able to post on our social media. But one of the things that yet again bothers me about this case is her grandmother had access to her room. Her grandmother had admitted to have been able to have read her journal and no one had interceded on Alyssa's behalf. No one had gone and said, this is so disturbing, I think this needs to stop. I think somebody needs to intercede on this. I think she might be a danger to other people. She is writing about her own sister dying. Maybe this is not a safe place. That was never once said. In fact, her grandmother had accompanied her during the interrogation, when they were looking for Elizabeth Olton, and the grandmother completely did not believe Alyssa Bustamante had anything to do with what happened to Elizabeth Olton, Even knowing all of the things she did to her granddaughter. And it takes me back to what is happening in this current neighborhood you have all of these people telling you there is something very dangerous going on. And your only response is, well, why is everyone picking on my child? People are not picking on or isolating your child. People are trying to identify a very big problem And they're wanting you to seek help once admitted that they have her journal and that they've seen her journal. And when it's told that her grandmother has seen her journal, you see just a flip on Alyssa and Alyssa begins to share with what happens. And she initially starts saying, oh, it was an accident. And that's how Elizabeth died. And you see an, an emotional reaction from, um, the grandmother. The grandmother gets upset. She leaves the room and it's, it's just, it's a very emotional moment. But here's the part that gets me upset is then the officer rice and the advocate are sitting there and officer rice is trying to get Alyssa to tell him where elizabeth is because Alyssa is trying to say well she burned elizabeth up she set her on fire she burned her up um, because she didn't want her to be found, which they know is not true. Alyssa at the time didn't know how hard it actually is to burn a body. She's assuming, you know, you can just catch a body on fire, it all burns away, and you'll never see it again. She didn't know at that point, well, no, it doesn't work that way. You can't just burn a body to make it go away, and So we know that the body is somewhere and there's evidence that she actually didn't fall and get hurt and you just burned her up and you can literally hear the grandmother wailing from out in the hallway. But so you have the advocate and you have the officer and the officer is trying to get the information from Alyssa, but here. Here is where the problem is. An advocate is there to provide a safe space for the juvenile. Their role is to act as a safe space for the juvenile, no matter how strongly you feel for the victim. As an advocate, You're an advocate for, even though that person may have committed the most heinous crime in the world. Your job as an advocate is to observe and advocate. No matter how horrible the acts are, observe and advocate. This advocate became an interrogator. This advocate became involved and began interrogating Alyssa as well. And due to that, Alyssa's confession gets thrown out of court. So everyone needs to remember, all of us, podcasters, bloggers, social media, when we are all out there. However, we feel about the law enforcement as a team, we are a team. And one person can screw something up. Something can screw up an active case. Any type of interference can potentially reduce time lose a case, and it can crush the hopes of victims and of the victim's family of receiving any type of justice. Alyssa's defense team tried to offer a number of excuses for what caused Alyssa to perform this horrid act on her neighbor Elizabeth Olton, including taking the antidepressant Prozac, which she had begun taking in 2007 after a previous suicide attempt. Now, they had recently increased the dosage just two weeks prior to Elizabeth's murder. However, many psychologists and mental health experts have said the connection between SSRI meds like Prozac and violent crimes are dubious and not causally related. Elizabeth's defense team also recounted a history of family drug abuse, suicide attempts, and mental disorders. They also depicted the defendant's mental state prior to the crime. Her lawyers also told the jury that her mother had abandoned her and her father was in prison. Now, psychologists for the defense described Alyssa as psychologically damaged and severely and emotionally disturbed. They testified that she suffers from major depression and she also displays symptoms of borderline personality disorder, or BPD, which is characterized by feelings of emptiness, instability of moods, inappropriate displays of anger, and poor impulse control. Though the details of Alyssa's mental stability were quite disturbing, she had previous suicide attempts, a history of self-harm, including over 300 cuts on her body, as well as self-inflicted cigarette burn marks. The most disturbing and damning evidence was the journal entry that Alyssa had made in her diary after the murder. Now I wanna issue a trigger warning before we get into the information we're about ready to get into. We need to remember this is child on child crime. So when police were going through a room, they had found the journal sitting there. Now she had scribbled it out really well, and thought that would be it. Well, of course that's not it. Law enforcement are able to utilize methods. They're able to find it and they were able to see what was underneath because they were able to utilize forensic methods to see what was underneath the scribbling she had written. And underneath there, what they had found stated, I strangled them and slit their throat. I stabbed them now, they're dead. I don't know how to ATM, dot, dot, dot. It was amazing. As soon as you get over the, oh my God, I can't do this feeling, it's pretty enjoyable. I'm kind of nervous and shaky though right now. K, I got to go to church now, dot, dot, dot. LOL, that was her entry. And then she goes to church. Now, Missouri State Highway Patrol Sergeant David Rice, who interviewed Alyssa in the days after the murder, testified in court that the motive was chillingly simple. He stated she just wanted to know what it felt like. Now, after days of very emotional testimony in court, the prosecution made an impassioned plea for the judge to give her a life sentence. That's what they wanted, Alyssa to be in prison for the rest of her life. They didn't want her out and around anyone else. Alyssa, she had been staring at the floor the whole time while prosecution is discussing her crime. But that's when she finally breaks down and begins to cry for the first time in over two years. Her grandparents become upset and they storm out of the courtroom. Alyssa's grandparents were not the only ones to have an emotional breakdown, however. After the judge's announcement that he would hand down a sentence the next day, the grandmother of the victim, Elizabeth Olton, yells out, I think Alyssa should get out of jail the same day Elizabeth gets out of the grave. When she recounts how she killed Elizabeth Olton, this is not someone who was showing a lot of remorse for what happened to Elizabeth Olton, This is somebody who was more emotional about what was going to happen to them than what was happened to Elizabeth Olton. I want to refer you to the writings and the pictures on Alyssa Bustamante's walls where she is making threats against her own family members her little sister, Emma. There was an audible gasp in the courtroom when the now 18-year-old Alyssa admits to taking a knife from a kitchen set in her own family kitchen and slitting the throat of Elizabeth Olton. After she slits her throat, then she begins strangling her with her bare hands. Now, that is not something, again, you see in a killer usually strangle first, then try slicing through, inducing death, then doing the cutting. And it's almost like she wanted to feel her life blood in her hands. Not only that, when she was done with the knife, she washed it and returned it to the kitchen. On February 8th, 2012, Alyssa Bustamante gave a final statement before the judge handed down her sentence. If I could give my life to bring her back, I would, Alyssa told the court. I just want to say, I'm sorry for what happened. I'm so sorry. She was then sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. In 2015, the mother of victim Elizabeth Olton sued Alyssa Bustamante, along with a mental health facility and two of its employees, for the wrongful death of her daughter. The lawsuit against the facility and its employees, it was dismissed. They wouldn't hold them liable. But Alyssa was held responsible and will owe Elizabeth Olton's mother $5 million plus a yearly interest until the debt is paid. Now we all know she's never going to see that money. And I think she was trying to make a point that if Alyssa Bustamante would have got the mental health, she should have got at the beginning, that maybe Elizabeth Olton would still be alive. Those people can be paroled after only 15 years of incarceration. So as a result. Bustamante will be granted a parole hearing, which is coming up in July of 2024. Now, the family member and some lawmakers, uh, a group called National Organization of Juvenile Murderers, they are attempting to repeal the bill, and they also have a petition on change.org, which we will be passing around. So what is the difference between child-on-child-crime and playing. The easiest way I can boil it down in layman's terms is intent and repetition. What is the child's intent? Also, what is the behavior's frequency when this child is out playing? So, let's say some kids are playing And the child says, oh my gosh, we were playing and things got a little rough. And they appear really remorseful when a child gets hurt during play. And it's not an event that happens a lot. Sometimes kids get hurt and that's just something that happens. It's a one-off during play and you see that there was no intent to commit harm. But... In the case of a child psychopath, that's where you're going to see, with a certain child, you're going to see multiple events of play that escalate to harm with other children. Their intent is to inflict harm. Now, you rarely have a chance to hear the child say that. Like I said, you rarely have a chance to hear the child say that. I will tell you, there was, in the certain case I'm talking about, I literally had the chance to hear this kid actually say the words, he wanted to kill another child. I was floored and was like, what? When I had dove into the scrapping they were have and when I see he's like oh yeah and I mean he had this look on his face and I just was a little floored and as I was taking him to his parents and then he said oh well I don't really want to kill them I just want to kick multiple of their body parts and it was still like holy cow, and again, I was like, well, why do you want to do this? And again, he was citing he was angry. So his intent was obvious. His intent was he wanted to cause harm. Now, usually in these cases, individuals or the children with conduct disorder or psychopathy They won't walk away from a situation until some sort of damage is inflicted or they are forcibly removed from a situation. Also remember, repetition is important as well. The child who might be involved in one incident, yeah, they should be reviewed um, and figure out what happened in that situation. But they should be reviewed a little differently than the child who has been involved in multiple fights, scraps, abusive situations, verbally abusive situations. Remember, they don't only need to inflict physical harm. If you have a child who is emotionally and verbally abusing other children, you need to look at the hows and the whys of this situation. Also, we need to identify if they focus on a specific child with their acts of violence or aggression, or if they unleash that aggression on just opportunity, whoever is available at the time. Again, investigators, the judicial system, mental health workers, they always want to first question the intent what is the intent and so many people will always when they come to me with something or they'll come to me and again this is when a case has already been established about an individual my first question is always what was their intent on the situation were they focused on that individual or was it a crime of opportunity and i feel so sorry for my children when they were growing up Because whenever they committed an offense, I would always look at what was their intent when they broke the rule. So yeah, always very difficult for them. Now what's really interesting when you're dealing with children in these child-on-child crimes and you're trying to focus on the intent or what was the primary intent of the individual, of course, you'll almost always hear certain answers. One of the first ones you will always hear is, well, I was just playing. We were just playing. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't saying anything mean. I was just playing. I was just yelling. I wasn't trying to hurt them. I was just playing. Play is a word that they realized and they realized at a very young age because a lot of adults will use that word. Oh, they were playing. They see that word and they mimic it. So it is a word you will hear them use and recite back to you. We were just playing. But I can almost always bet what their next words will be. And the next words are usually, well, they made me mad. It's either they made me mad or it was an accident. Those are the two words I've always heard almost every time that usually follow up when you're trying to figure out their intent. It's almost like those with psychopathy or conduct disorder are programmed with those specific answers. Also, what's absolutely amazing to me is it's gotten to a point, just by reading their body language, I can almost pinpoint which excuse they're going to use next. Are they going to say, hmm they made me mad, we were just playing, or it was an accident. And you can almost tell by the shift their face is making which excuse they're going to come up with. In the case of Elizabeth Olton. Elizabeth Bustamante, during her interrogation, she went with, it was an accident, and she kept up that charade until confronted with her journal. It was only then that she admitted to slitting Elizabeth's throat and then strangling her. And again, she stated she did that because she wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. So she only admitted the truth once she knew her truth was already there in writing previous to that she had told mental health workers that she couldn't stand violence so again very different dualities now we are going to go much deeper into this conversation of child-on-child crimes this is just our first episode And we're also going to go much deeper into the debate of psychopathy in children. But, you know, I've gone way longer on this episode than I have in a long time. But our next episode, we're going to be discussing the case of Eric Smith. This case really fully got me invested with child on child crimes just studying behaviors and for those of you who may not be familiar Eric Smith at the age of 13 tortured and murdered a four-year-old child Derek Joseph Roby in Steuben County, New York on August 2nd, 1993. Now Smith was convicted of second degree murder in 1994 and sentenced to the maximum term that was available for juvenile murderers at that time. And that was nine years to life in prison. Here's the kicker. Smith has recently been granted parole. He served 27 years in prison. He was officially released in February of 2022. Eric Smith had confessed to murdering this small child because he said he had suffered years of bullying at school and he wanted to take his anger out on someone. And this poor little child was just the subject of his anger. However, during the trial, there were multiple reports indicating that there were some issues with Smith, and he just wasn't a normal child growing up. So, there's a lot we're going to get into with that one. I also am going to get into the case, after that case, I want to get into the case of brothers Robert and Michael Bevers. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Now... They spent a year planning the murders of their family. This took place on July 22, 2015 in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. One sister was able to escape due to the heroism of another brother, not the ones who committed the crime. And I want to feature this case to exhibit how they talk so much about how they're raised and use that as the reason they commit the crimes. However, these two brothers commit these horrendous crimes because their reasoning is they wanted to get famous. And I mean, we'll get into this case and it's a horrific case. But what gets me is these are children all raised in the same household, all raised the same way. Two brothers are committing the most horrific, horrific crimes. And one brother does the most amazing act of sacrifice for his sister and they're all raised in the same house. So this is one of the things I wanna get into when we talk about behaviors. Now, one last thing. I've been asked by quite a few people, neighbors, family members, whatever, what do you do if you're caught in the crossfire of let's say a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old who is exhibiting these behaviors and nobody has really interacted or is doing anything yet. You know, what do you do? And my recommendations to listeners and neighbors alike are these. And again, I just want to say these are my recommendations. Our recommendations here at Killers for Breakfast slash Crime Scene and Cupcakes. So you can take these. But again, these are recommendations by us only. Number one. If you can, security cameras are always going to be your best friend. First of all, they help monitor your area, but they also help avoid he said, she said arguments. CCTV does not lie. It presents the evidence to law enforcement. It presents the evidence to everyone alike. And there is no question, you cannot lie, conceal, or change anything that is documented on camera. Also, a lot of these behaviors are accompanied by thefts, excuse me, are accompanied by thefts or vandalism. So it's usually pretty helpful to, if you can, put cameras or at least one camera up at your house in order to capture any type of wrongful behavior that might be occurring. Also, again, if you have pets, this also helps protect your pets whenever you are not home. Number two, I recommend setting clear boundaries. One of the problems I see a lot is people say, well, we just ignore them and then they go away. No, obviously these type of children don't adhere to the to somebody just ignoring them. The more you ignore them, the more they're going to try to get your attention. You have to set clear and defined boundaries. If you don't want them playing with your child, you need to state You are not allowed to play with my child and you not only need to make sure you tell the child, you tell the child's parents. They aren't allowed on your property and they're not allowed to play with your child and you need to follow through with that. You are the one that's in control and you need to maintain that control. If you don't do that, then it's very difficult to control outside behaviors. Also another thing, you need to continue to document. If you're having a problem, if there is somebody within your neighborhood, child or adult that is having erratic behaviors and you've had multiple conflicts, you need to make sure that you are documenting these behaviors. If something unfortunate were to happen, anything and everything you have on documentation, on cameras, any of that will assist you if anything goes to court or anything unfortunately might happen. And again, being very clear and concise with their parents. And letting them know that you are documenting and that you do have cameras and that you are protecting your property. But again, no inciting violence, no aggressive discussions. Make sure you are being polite and, you know, don't do anything that will incite a situation further. And always make sure you're putting times, dates, and when it comes to online activity. Now, this is not my strongest foray. I, when it comes to technology, am not tech savvy, but there are people and places who are, and we will provide those links on our social media. However, I do know that children have figured out how to create false phone numbers, or they do online phone numbers and that type of thing. My rule of thumb would always be if you're in my child's cell phone, I better have been able to have met you in person. If there is a phone number or a name in the child's night in the child's phone book, I would dang sure make sure I knew physically who that person was. Now, some people say, well, children shouldn't have cell phones, but I will bring up the fact that nine-year-old Elizabeth Olton had a cell phone and it was that cell phone ping that brought authorities closer to catching her killer and finding answers. So I do think cell phones are very helpful when it comes to finding your child. And in case anything ever happens, I do think they are helpful as long as you are being mindful as a parent and keeping track of those things. Also, contacting authorities when issues and things are, are arise. Yes, they're going to be annoyed. They get sick of the barrage of phone calls, the barrage of paperwork, um, DCF, those kind of places, they get sick of hearing it. You know what? It sucks too bad. You need and everyone needs that line of documentation. Were anything unsavory ever to happen, if that person goes to court, they have to show a pattern of behavior. So it's imperative to keep at it, not only for the safety of your children, but also for the safety of others. Without a trail of paperwork, they can sometimes even convict them on lesser crimes because it looks like, oh my gosh, this person, this is their first time they've ever done any type of offense. And you don't want that to happen. Also, another thing is your kids are just as active on social media and looking at programs as you. And when it comes to true crime, I have seen the accessibility of children to be able to see just as many true crime programs, unfortunately, as adults. So this is a perfect time to begin a conversation with your child about crime on crime with children. What is appropriate play and what isn't? When does this become an uncomfortable situation. And you can teach your child, no, this person wasn't playing, this person was hurting you, and it's okay to say, this is not cool, and remove yourself from that situation and when to talk to an adult. Also, it's a great time to be able to educate your child of the see something, say something. Children think along the same way as adults. So when adults are barraging TikToks and everything else of the anti-law enforcement philosophy, children are seeing that. So they become afraid to go to higher ups. They are afraid to turn in for behaviors. And they start worrying about the unsavory social groups. This is your chance to combat that information. And it is your chance to have a open conversation with them to explain. Yeah, it looks like nothing's being done, but it actually takes a lot of information for the authorities to do something. And by you saying something, you are helping make a difference. It takes so many times of reporting for anybody to do anything. And now you are helping make a difference too. And you need to show it in more of a positive manner and a positive light. And it also shows them the positive social groups and the negative social groups. And so you are starting that conversation with your children and bringing it to a positive place. And that's something to instill now and will hopefully become even more of a positive positive in the true crime communities to come. Now, I hope these tips have been helpful. I hope you've been able to take some education and insightful things away from our first in the series of child-on-child crimes and in the case of Alyssa Bustamante. I hope there have been some things in today's podcast that will empower you during your own activities this summer with your kids and in your own communities. We just want everyone to have a safe and enjoyable summer. We don't wanna freak anyone out, but we want people to be educated and empowered. That is our first and foremost reason for doing these podcasts. And we appreciate all of our listeners. We're sorry things have taken so long. Like I said, I have been incredibly sick. I'm not over it yet, and we have a huge trip coming up where we are going to be going to the Basilica Axe Murder House. I'm not quite sure Um, the paranormal groups are going to have to explain this to me. All I know is I'm going, and I'm very excited, and I guess we're going to be doing um, group podcasts from there, so look forward to that. And we look forward to talking to you more as the series evolves. Thank you so much for listening and be safe.